Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. There has never been a better time to be alive. And yet for all of the comforts and conveniences and the advances of technology, the ways that we can keep hardship at least at arm's length, if not further away, we still face things in life that make us ask, why God? And American Christianity in general, right, in the land of choices, expediency, and alternate solutions, if I want something shipped to me and I, it's going to take more than two days, well, what is, what's going on with that? I'm going to go with an option that gets it to me faster. Or I don't want to only have one choice. I want the freedom to choose what I want, get it to me as fast as possible, and those things form us beyond just retail and buying things. They form us into certain kinds of people. And so I think in America, especially in the, in the West in general, we've not done a very good job in maintaining this element of our Christian heritage that goes all the way back to the prophets themselves. And what I'm speaking of is this thing called lament. And lament usually begins like this. Why? Why? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and so there are lots of examples from him. Jeremiah 9.12. Who is wise enough to understand all this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it to others? Why has the land been so ruined that no one dares to travel through it? Jeremiah 12.1. Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you, so let me bring you this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are evil people so happy? Jeremiah 15, 18. Why then does my suffering continue? Why is my wound so incurable? Your help seems as uncertain as a seasonal brook, God, like a spring that has gone dry. Jeremiah 20, 18. Why was I ever born? My entire life has been filled with trouble, sorrow, and shame. When we think about why these things happen, one way to frame this up is something called a trilemma. It's like a dilemma, but with one more element, right? So a trilemma. God may be powerful and good if there is no evil. God may be good and there can be evil if God is not powerful. Or God may be powerful and there can be evil if God is not good. I'll get that later. Don't worry about that. Well, God is good. We're going to go through each of these. Is God good? Is God powerful? If God is good and powerful, why do I suffer? Why is there evil? Psalm 119, verse 68, says it very plainly to God. You are good, God, and you do good things. God's goodness is most clearly revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Commentator Reed Lessing puts it like this. Jesus allows his body to be beaten, stripped, whipped, and pinned to wood in order to forgive the sins of every person who ever lived. Jesus sees Mary and John at the cross to comfort him, and instead he comforts them. Jesus promises paradise to a dying thief. 
With his final breath, Jesus prays for forgiveness for the very people who crucified him. What does the cross tell us? God is good. Very good. And we heard in our reading from Romans that St. Paul cites Jesus' death on the cross for us as the foundation for our hope that God will give us everything good. I'm going to read that one verse for you again from Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not give us all things? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is good. And he's proven it in the cross of Jesus. God is also powerful. Isaiah 40, verse 12, says it like this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? The answer is, God has done this. And in case this doesn't sound very impressive, consider this. There are 430 quintillion gallons of water on our planet, and God measures them in the hollow of his hand, like when you... Scoop up a little drink for yourself. This, this right here for God, he holds 430 quintillion gallons of water. And quintillion, by the way, that is a real number. But as I was typing up this sermon, that little squiggly red line appeared underneath it that said, um, are you sure you don't, you're not just making this word up? So God's power even is beyond our uh, word processor's ability to comprehend. Huh? The universe itself, as far as we know, is more than 30 billion light years across. The amount of distance light travels in one year, 30 billion of those, and God measures them out like a carpenter pulling out a tape measure. So as inconceivable as it is for us that God could measure and weigh the earth and the mountains and the hills in a balance, like Isaiah says at the end of verse 12, the picture that scripture paints for us is that only the lowermost limits of God's power are conceivable to us. There is so much more that God is capable of. His power stretches far beyond our comprehension or our imagination. And so God is good and God is powerful and that leaves us with suffering. And the testimony of scripture to suffering is that suffering is real. You all know, you're here. And if you're watching, it's probably because you know this too. Suffering is very real. At least it's very real for now. Suffering and affliction and grief are not forever. When Jesus comes back and we all cross over that river Jordan into the promised land, the true river Jordan into the true promised land, it's called the new heaven and the new earth in the book of Revelation. Suffering will be no more. From Revelation 21, it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A day is coming when we will shed our last tear for eternity. Grief will be no more. The sorrows of this world will be lifted off of us by the strong hands of that tradesman from Nazareth once and for all. But until that day comes, we have to let what we know from God's word carry us through the things that we don't really find answers for in God's word. Things like, why did I miscarry? Why can't I conceive? Why was my baby stillborn after a healthy pregnancy? Why was my mother taken from me so soon? Why did God give me the joy of motherhood only to take it away from me in the death of my child? And so many more questions. The scriptures give us a framework for dealing with these. And it goes like this. The first thing you do is you complain. You complain to God. Don't bottle it up. Don't think you need to be holy or more spiritual or somehow stronger than that. Let it rip. Open it up. Complain to God. And then you appeal to God's love. Say, God, you love me, and I know that you do, because you gave your only son to die for me, that I would live with you forever. So do something different. Give me relief. Give me deliverance. Heal my broken heart. Do something, God. You remind God of his promises. You promised to be good to us. You promised that those who put their hope in you will, be, will not be put to shame. You tell us in your word that by your wounds, Jesus, we are healed. All the promises of God you find in scripture. Remind God of what he said. And then you express your trust in God's wisdom. Because eventually, after all of this, God's ways are still higher than our ways. And we still probably are not going to get a clear, concise answer to why. And then we seek help from each other, from our families, from our congregation, from a professional. And this process is not going to be fast or easy. But if you can remember, complain, appeal, remind God of his promises, express your trust in him, and don't go through it alone. That's the model scripture gives us for lamenting. And it's better than growing cold and bitter and detached, thinking you can just deal with this on your own. Just bury it somewhere in the back 40 of your heart. Don't do that. That's not what God wants for you. That's not what our community wants for you. (laughs) Once again from Reed Lessing, he says this, Sorrow can transform our heart into stone. We turn off emotions. We build walls. What's the solution? Laments. Laments aren't signs of weakness. Laments are signs of strength. They melt the icebergs frozen on the inside. They bring us back from the dead. Some people, however, are uncomfortable with grief. When we open our heart, they change the subject. They leave the room or they turn on the TV. Anything to avoid awkward displays of emotion. And we live in a society that wrongly concludes it's best not to discuss loss. 
and it's better for people to privately cry. However, we must find ways to express our sadness about what once was, is no longer, and will never be again. That's what we're here to do tonight. We're gathered in the name of Jesus, meditating on the word of God that gives us life, and together we're lamenting. We've come together to complain to God. We've come together to appeal to God's love. We've come together to remind God of what he has promised to do for us or for our loved ones. We're here to express our trust in God's wisdom and in this community to seek help. Because suffering is real, even in the best time to ever be alive. But what else is real is God's power and God's love for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.